0: That means I can talk fast today. So welcome again. For those of you that are here uh, online and here in person, we're so glad that you're joining us. As we are adventuring through the scriptures, we are in the Old Testament. We're in the book of Nehemiah, and this is really one of my favorite passages uh, of the whole book of Nehemiah. We are going to be in uh, chapter 2, verses 11 to 18. Joe, and just so that you understand where we're at, Nehemiah has been called by God to go back to Jerusalem after the exile and rebuild the walls to fortify the city. And God has put this into his heart to do this. Uh, When Nehemiah first heard about the destruction and the gates were on fire, he wept and he fasted before the Lord. And he, he, he prayed for the king's heart to be changed. The king gave him everything he needed, and he set him off to Jerusalem. And this is about 450-so-odd years before the time of Christ. And so Nehemiah, we saw last week, that he was inspired by God, he was then guided by God, and he was also provided for by God but yet it still needed to happen. He still needed to take that action to take that next step and actually go to Jerusalem. So he took the first hard step and that was to talk to King Artaxerxes and to mention to him with the threat of his life as we spoke about. But then after that prayer and after that incident and interaction and the favor from God, he now has to take that action and move and, and go to Jerusalem. And so that's, Where we are today, we are going to read about Nehemiah's first impression of Jerusalem when he gets there. And so this is Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 11 through 18. And in verse 11 says, So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days, and I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. Verse 13. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and onto the refuse gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down and its gates, which were consumed by fire. Then I passed on to the fountain gate, the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate and returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I yet told them, or told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. Then verse 17, Then I said to them, You see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, come. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. Verse 18, I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words, which he had spoken to me. Then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. Let us arise and build. So creativity, It's ingrained in us, creating, building, restoring. Humans are unique and separate from the rest of God's creation in a lot of different ways. We are capable of things that the rest of his creatures are incapable of. I know many of you know these things, but self-analysis. Animals aren't able to do this. Imagination. Reasoning or abstract reasoning, cultural establishment, morality, and it can go on and on and on. We are a very distinct creature from the rest of God's creation. Let me flesh this out for you just a little bit more. Recently, my youngest son had a friend over. <clears throat> we made them hamburgers. His friend, not knowing the instincts of my American bulldog, Moose, he left his plate on our low table in our living room. And then this young man, leaving his hamburger there, went off to the bathroom. And of course, when he came back, the burger was nowhere in sight. Now, Moose had no remorse for this. He had no abstract reasoning process for this decision to take that burger. He didn't weigh the moral pros and cons and Should I eat it or should I not? Nope, he instinctively went after that burger without any sense of regret and without any moral infraction. He just did it. Now, of course, Moose, he can be trained on what to do and what not to do, but it's not his keen, inherent sense of morality that's going to train him or cause or prevent him from eating this child's burger. It's his association with pleasure and pain. If he knew that there was going to be pain, he may not do it. But he knew there would be much pleasure if he did. Now, of course, I didn't catch him in the act. So the bad doggy lecture that I gave him, it did, in fact, send him cowering off to his crate. But for what? He'll probably never remember. Why? Because he's a dog. You see, our sense of morality is one aspect of our God-given image-bearingness, if that's even a word. This separates God's creatures from the rest of God's creatures, God's human creatures from the rest of everything else that he created. But it's of my opinion that one of the biggest traits that separate us and one of the most important traits and most incredible is our creativity. The creativity that God gives us that emulates himself. Creativity, for the formal definition, it's the use of the imagination or original ideas, especially in the production of an artistic work. It's one of God's most amazing attributes, which he passes on to us as his image bearers. Now we see creativity in the beauty and artistic magnificence of every single aspect of God's creation. God's infinitely creative mind thought of, think, think about this, from scratch, every detail of every species and kind that was ever created before it even happened. He created the beauty, but also the complexity of all things that we see and all things that we don't see. So why this introduction to Nehemiah 2, 11 to 18? What does this have to do with God putting into the heart of Nehemiah the idea, the strategy, and the plan to go to Jerusalem and rebuild it? Well, I, be- I believe it's because the creative vision that he gave Nehemiah to rebuild the walls is a model for us, for all the children of God, in what we are to do. We're called to use our God-given mind, our God-given creativity, our God-given reasoning ability, not to build the walls of Jerusalem per se, but to build for, towards the kingdom of God in its fullness. So God has given us this creativity, this creative aspect of our mind, our reasoning ability, everything that separates us as human beings, he has given to us for one purpose and one purpose only, that is to glorify him. And because Christ came and rose from the dead, launched the kingdom of God, he has now saved us for this purpose of coming alongside of him in this kingdom building process. He wants us to use our imagination, our, our morality, our reasoning ability, our skills, our talents, our personality, our uniqueness, and every other aspect of our image bearingness to be used for this present world. Now, I know that's a little different from what we hear. A lot of times we hear about, let's think about the world to come. But in essence, that's what it is we are doing. The world to come is not in disembodied existence up in the cloud. The world to come is a fully renewed, sinless, purified heaven and earth where we are one with Christ, where Christ comes down, the New Jerusalem comes down, adorned as a bride, it says in Revelation 21. And it becomes one with earth. This is the plan all the way from the beginning, the picture from the beginning. The duality of creation, that binary pattern we see in the first book of Genesis, heaven and earth, uh, moon and stars, and then we see this comparison to um, land animals, sea animals, and then we get all the way up until we see the ultimate binary opposites, and that is man and woman coming together as one. But this is all a picture of Christ and the church and of what God is doing with creation. And the beautiful thing about this, I think, is the book of Nehemiah is sort of a microcosm, especially this passage, a sort of a microcosm of this restoration that God is doing in the world, for the world, through his church and his people. Nehemiah encapsulates in miniature the characteristics, the qualities, and the features of something much bigger for us to grasp and apply. that's something much bigger is you and I following his example, arise and build and do God's work on earth as it is in heaven. Not in heaven as it is in heaven, but God wants us to take his will from heaven and put it to use and apply it to this world. And that's what I believe is one of the best applications of Nehemiah chapter 2, 11 to 18 that we just looked at. But I realized that this is a paradigm shift sort of thinking. It was for me, when I first understood what God saved me for, I thought it was just to go off to heaven when I die. And believe me, that was good enough at that time. Great, I'm going to be forgiven of my sins, and when I die, I'm going to go to heaven and be with God. But then I realized that God cares, about, excuse me, every tiny little detail of his creation that has become bad. Because what did he say in the beginning? The creation is good. And then what happened? It fell and it became contaminated by sin. But God is a God of righteousness. He is a God of perfect order. He's not going to let the creation go to the wayside. He's not going to take it and utterly destroy it. God is a God of restoration. If this Bible could be encapsulated in one word, one of those words could be restoration. Obviously with the common denominator of love, because that's what it's toward, toward this loving restoration that God is doing so that he can become and be one, that we can become one to him. So with him. So what I want to do is I want to look at this passage And I wanna try to to extract some of the key ideas that we can use, but also I want to clear up and to show you and to flesh out what it means to be a real kingdom builder, to go out and use what God has given us. Every one of us is a unique imprint, a unique DNA. You're different than every other human being that ever existed. You're put here for a purpose, but what is that purpose? It's much bigger. The page one of your salvation is your salvation, is your conversion. That's page one of an infinitely, uh, I can't even count, it's, it goes on and on and on and on. The book, that, the pages in that book of your life and your existence. Because it goes far and beyond this world. It connects with a continuity to the next world. And everything that we do matters. And, and, and is used towards that kingdom building process. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not giving you a social gospel where we need to go out and we need to build the world back up and we need to build the kingdom. And until we do that, God is only going to come back at that point. No, we are crucified with Christ. We no longer live, but it's Christ living in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's the rub. That's the uniqueness why did God give us the Holy Spirit? Yes, to sanctify us. Yes, to have that seal of redemption, but also to animate us and equip us and give us what we need to remember the word of God and also to proclaim the gospel for that to be the front runner and for that to be the impact with the world. That gospel is a, is a revolutionary, renewing gospel. It's redemptive It restores and it renews. Now, what do we see in this passage and what do we need to understand in order to arise and build? Well, it says, Nehemiah, we we jump from verse 10 to verse 11 and it says, so I came to Jerusalem and I was there three days. Now, this is an 800 mile trip. Now, I I, I looked up, I said, how long would it take to, 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 to do that, to walk that? So to walk 200 miles in 30 hours, or I'm sorry, to to go 30 hours, I'm sorry, 200 miles on horseback, it would take, um, let's see, 200 miles in 30 hours. So 800 miles would be 120 straight hours that it would have took him to go if he went on horseback, which he probably did in some way, shape or form, from Persia, where he was, all the way to Jerusalem. I don't know about you, but I recently drove to Nashville and it took me about 11 or 12 hours and it, it was hard. Drove straight through and it was just crazy. That's about how far it is from Persia to Jerusalem. So imagine going to Nashville or a little further on horseback. So you have to think, Nehemiah, what's in his mind as he's going through this? Well, first of all, we know that he was burdened. For, by God, right? He was burdened for what was going on in Jerusalem. He was burdened because of the walls were down. He knew what God wanted. He knew God's heart from reading the scriptures. And this burden then turned into this next part, this next action step that he did, which is he went and talked to King Artaxerxes. But still, he had to travel with his supporters, with King Artaxerxes' people protecting him there. Nehemiah was probably saying, well, I hope this isn't some sort of trap. Maybe the king thinks I'm up to something. Maybe he looked in the history books and saw what Jerusalem was, and maybe he thinks I'm trying to uh, raise up and cause mutiny on the bounty. Who knows? But also, I believe it was a lot of time to contemplate. He had a lot of time to think He said he kept it to himself, verse 12. He didn't tell anybody what was going on. So imagine having this amazing idea, God moving the heart of the king, God moving you for this great burden, God opening all these doors to go to Jerusalem. You need the timber, you need this letter, you need that letter, go and do it. Give you everything you want. He had no idea what he would see when he got there. I believe that's why he kept his mouth shut. Because he's saying, you know what, I feeling like I'm going to do this. I know God is with me, but I don't want to sit here and brag that I'm going to build the walls and I get there. And it's something that's way bigger than I expected. And so he kept himself. He had no idea what he would see. But he did, I believe, contemplate through this time. I mean, he had to think about this burden. He had to start to calculate and think about what he was doing. And he gets there. And he waits till nighttime and he goes around and he walks through the whole entire perimeter of the walls of Jerusalem. Now, this looks a lot different than the first temple, Solomon's temple, and it looks a lot different than Herod's temple at the time of Christ. This was sort of a, like a halfway uh, point of that because the walls were broken down. They rebuilt the temple, but nowhere near to the glory, they say, of Solomon's temple. And then Herod just sort of doubled everything and built everything out. And so he walked around the southern part of the wall and he identified the damage. Now these different gates that you see, the the, the Valley Gate and the Dragon's Well and the Refuse Gate and, and all those different gates, the Fountain Gates, in the next chapter, we're gonna get into that. So um, I, I did put a map on the Nehemiah uh, resource page on our website, so I would, I would recommend that, not now. But later when you get home, go to that page and you can see the map of Jerusalem and where all these gates are. And so it's a very it's a very long, narrow sort of map here. And Nehemiah walked around the bottom half only. He didn't go to the top. He didn't inspect the northern walls. He just inspected the, the walls down at the bottom. And then he went back. But what was he doing? How do we take this action step? The first, what can we grab out of this inspection? How do we take this action step to be wall builders, to be kingdom builders? God has given us, he's equipped us, he's opened the doors. The first thing I think we have to do is we have to be, not just identify the damage, but we have to be aware of the damage that has been done. And so when we look out at our world, I could sit here today and go down the list of the atrocities of the, uh, the horror of, of, of all the sickening things that man has come up with to violate God's law and to sin against God. And we're all guilty. The one common denominator there, though, what causes man, and this is what we have to understand when we do identify the damage, is what causes man to do this is his depravity, his complete and utter depravity. That doesn't mean he's entirely depraved, like he can't do anything good for somebody else. But the faculties of his mind, his intentions, his goals, his choices are always tainted and slanted by sin. And that sin completely deadens us before before the Lord. We're unable to come to God in that state and in that situation. Calvin called it total depravity. You could say utter depravity. Complete sinfulness. Man is born this way and man is unable and trapped to get himself out of that situation until God intervenes and opens up his heart. So us... The first thing we're going to need to know when we go out to build for God's kingdom is the type of things that we are going to be dealing with. The first thing is we are dealing with a fallen human race. And so you have to understand, like Nehemiah, traveling all that distance, probably very skeptical about what's going on. What is he going to see? And he also knows that Sambalat and Tobiah are against him. This is because of the depravity of man. He is against God. He is at war with God in his natural state. Nehemiah was also properly motivated for this action into restoration. He was properly inspired by God, but then he was moved to action. He was motivated. First and foremost, how? What did he do? He searched the scriptures. He knew God's promises. He knew that God promised to bring Israel back to the land. He knew he promised to regather them from wherever they were. He knew he promised that they would rebuild the temple. He knew that he promised that he would arrive suddenly in his temple. So the temple's got to be built. The wall's got to be fortified if God is going to come suddenly to the temple as which was foretold and, I'm sorry, fulfilled in Christ. But the first thing we have to do when we go out to build for God's kingdom is we have to make sure, first and foremost, we are abiding by God's word and abiding by the fact that Christ has redeemed the world. He has given us the victory positionally, but that doesn't mean the battles are going to stop. Kingdom building isn't purely victorious on the outside. Kingdom building is victorious by our obedience to do what God has called us to do. Kingdom building is victorious by saying, I am going to follow the Lord despite the opposition, despite what I feel, despite the fact of my sin. I am going to repent. I am going to continue to move forward. I am going to agree with God and I am going to go out, but it's all going to be based upon the foundation of God's word. And it's very easy to be pragmatic and say, oh, yeah, that's really good that, you know, abortion isn't going to be around anymore if that is in fact the case. That's that's great, because, again, you know, we can list all the great reasons why. But ultimately here, the, the heart of God is not going to be grieved anymore because we look at the scriptures and we see the love that God has for his people, for his creation, So it's foundational on the word of God. Why am I going to go out and stand against abortion? Because the word of God says so. Not whether or not it makes sense. Not whether or not it's, you know, go to work. It's to be that prophetic voice and stand on the word of God. It it has nothing to do with culture. Regardless of what culture we're we're in, the word of God still endures. It doesn't matter about if we get good politicians or bad politicians because human the, the human race is depraved and power corrupts celebrities we often look at celebrities that tell us you know what's good and what's bad and you know like we're going to hear quotes from people that their whole entire life they pretend to be someone else do we want to follow that person I don't know what are their values what are their morals You don't know the word of God, not the celebrities, not what everyone else is doing, not for the greater good. The word of God is where it begins and where it stops. And so this is what Nehemiah, he knew God's word. He knew his promises, but he also knew what God was doing. He knew the building project that God was on, this renewal project that he was instituting. Through the scriptures, he sees it. And he is the man to take and stand in the gap. And I know you you look at this and say, well, that was Nehemiah. He was special. We can go through all the biblical characters, but this is you as well. This is you as well. Wherever you are at, what your skills are, what your vision is that God has given you, he wants you to go to his word and implement it based upon that to build for his kingdom. So let me give this, flesh this out a little bit more. How do we know? We go just to God's word, yes. But remember, God's word is based off of what? God's character. God's word is based off of God's character. We were talking about the morality of my dog. And again, that's sort of like an oxymoron, right? Because I don't know if he has a sense of of morality. Because I don't think that he can know personally Jesus Christ or can know God. I know it's hard to understand, especially dog lovers out there. You're thinking, no, that's not true. My dog knows the Lord. <laughs> you don't understand Pat. I, I'm sort of the same way. You know, I think, well, if any dog's going to be saved, it's going to be my dog. No, but that, that, that morality comes from the character of God. So the character of God is ingrained in our being, in our image, but also in our heart, in our conscience. That's what dictates what's right or wrong. So one of the ways that we can go out and, and foundationally know if what we're doing is grounded in the character of God from a moral perspective is looking at the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are a moral foundation. They are. It is the moral law but more importantly, it is the expression of God. Now, the Jewish people sinned against God's law. Nehemiah knew this. The Jewish people violated all the aspects of the law, especially, though, the moral law. Idolatry, prostitution, not keeping the Sabbath, these were all the things that they had done wrong. But for us to identify this damage, we have to know that our morality comes from the character of God and then what we have to do is form a worldview based on that morality. And it's not just the negative of the Ten Commandments. It's the positive of the Ten Commandments as well. Do you know what I mean by that, the, the negative and the positive? Why, we're, why if you are a Christian and you are pro-life, you are happy that abortion is not going, it could potentially be outlawed uh, from the federal level, is not because, oh well, you know, this is going to be just you know so great here, and 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 it's you know it's it's the word of God. But the reason that you are going to be so excited about this is because thou shalt not kill, which is murder, is the negative aspect of that. But what's the flip side of that commandment? If God says don't kill, He's also telling you what? To protect life. And every commandment has those two sides. So our job isn't just to not murder, but our job is also to protect life. Yesterday we were driving down Route 9, me and my daughter, and, and um we saw this man laying on the in the highway. He was he was laying face down in the gutter in the highway on the on the lane, and there was you know he was laying there and my first impulse was to stop the truck and run over there to this guy but there had already been two other guys that had just stopped and by the time we went to the U-turn to get around the cops and the ambulances were already there but why do I have that instinct? why don't I just have an atheistic evolutionary worldview and just look up some more organized protoplasm on the side there I don't, why? Because God has put in my heart that protection of life. And so I look and I say, oh, I I wanna do this. And so this this is the foundation, this has to be the part of the foundation of our moving forward to build the kingdom of God. If you're violating the law or if something else is violating the law, that is something that we should, as Christians, take a stand with or against. Love expresses both aspects of the law. So, if you're doing it out of love, then it's good. If you're d- unto God, not to be arrogant, not to be confrontational, but out of love, and if you can go to every commandment, and you could look at our you could look at our culture and find something to go stand for, especially for lives being saved, as in abortion. We also see do not commit adultery. What is that? Not committing adultery is what? It breaks up the family, but it also shows us God's heart for the preservation of the family. He values that family so much that he doesn't want anything there to to come across and to break that up and to stop that multi-generational rollout of God's kingdom. And again, what do we see in our culture now? We see the absolute attack on the family. We see an attack on gender. We see an attack on every aspect of procreation. And that's one thing you could always do. Is it taking away life or is it propagating life? See, Jesus was promoting new creation, God's always promoting new creation. The wages of sin are death. So sin is always taking away and attributing to anti-creation, like in abortion, like in homosexuality and homosexual marriage. It's anti-creation. It can never put forth new creation. But these are the things, these are the walls, these are the damages that we have outside in our world that God is not calling the government to fix. He's calling the light of the world to go out and shine. And that's what Nehemiah is doing here. He's first surveying the damage to go out and to then he is going to take these stands. He's going to do this as we see this going forward. The Bible says, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them, Ephesians 5, 11. One of my favorites is Proverbs 25, 26. A righteous man falling down before the wicked is as a troubled fountain and a corrupt spring a righteous man should stand up and against the wicked because of who we, know, who we are and whose we are. And so this is what God is, this is the parallel between Nehemiah and I believe what we're doing here. And he understood God's word. <clears throat> he knew that this kingdom project that God was doing, this whole entire thing was gonna come out only in, through, in and through this ministry of Restoration. And so how do we apply that to our life? Well, first of all, for you to get what I'm talking about here and to buy into this and to say, yes, I realize this, Pat. I want to be like Nehemiah and go out and build the walls that are broken down. But how, in fact, do I do that? What, in fact, do I have to go and do? Well, before you go and do, we have to fully understand why we are to do that. And it's because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the reason I'm saying that we need to put a stake in the ground that says this is Jesus' land is because it is. He is now king. He has purchased back what the devil took. He destroyed the work of the devil. He arose and became enthroned over all the universe. And that is the full extent of the gospel. The gospel is the announcement of this exaltation of this ascension to the right hand of God, and as a result of the gospel, the gospel is what? The power of God unto salvation. So as a result of the gospel, we can now believe that message on who Christ is and what he's done for us, and we can be transformed and saved. And that, first of all, comes from a personal transformation and agreement with God on the construction project that we are to do. So God and you have to agree on what it is, what walls need to be rebuilt and why. And you could find that agreement in the gospel. It's inherent in the gospel that Christ has defeated sin. He has defeated death. He has defeated evil. Now we have to implement that as Nehemiah is going to go and implement these walls. Restoration is, again, you have to understand this is in the heart of God. We have a ministry of reconciliation, which is the first page of restoration. We are to reconcile the world back to God. Jesus said in Luke 960, allow the dead to bury their own dead. As a man said, hey, I gotta go bury my father after he told him to come follow him. But Jesus says as for you, go and proclaim everywhere how to get to heaven, The kingdom of God, the rule of God. Kingdom of God means God's rule is here. Do you believe that? If you don't believe that, you're not gonna wanna go out and build. You're gonna wanna either stay where you are or just sort of shelter in place until it's over. Now, you could do that, but I tell you that you're not doing what God has called you and I believe enabled you to do And what the penalty for that is, is gonna be you're gonna be robbed of your joy. You're gonna be robbed of that participation. Okay, like if I tell my son I'm going down for I'm going for a ride, I'm going out to, to clean the yard, I'm going to do this, he wants to come along with me. I could go and do it on my own and come and tell him about it. But when he comes along with me, it's a memory that we have forever. It means something. God wants us to come along with him, he's ultimately created us to do that. this is the essence of the Great Commission. This is the greatness of the Great Commission, which is actually a book titled Greatness of the Great Commission by Ken Gentry. I recommend it. It's probably like two bucks on Amazon. It's an old book, but it's an inspiring book about the greatness of this commission to go out and rebuild in the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven, the control room, and earth where it's playing out. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That means it's, this isn't go and get everybody saved. This is go and train people how to be a Christian. Go and show them the word of God on what it means to be a Christian. For what? For the kingdom of God. Otherwise, the authority would be useless. We could just be told, go out. I don't really have any authority right now, but sneak around and tell people the gospel. The spirit will be with you. No, Jesus is like, this is a victory. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus didn't talk about anything more than he did about the kingdom of God. He never talked about nothing else that much. Over 110 times it's mentioned just in the gospels alone. Let me give this a little bit more meat for you. I don't know if you've ever heard of Bezalel or Bezalel. Bezalel means in the shadow or protection of God in the shadow or protection of God. Bezalel was a skilled artisan from Judah. He knew how to work all sorts of metal, wood, stone, and he was one of the architects of the first tabernacle. How did he get the skill? Listen, Exodus 35, 30 to 35. Moses said to the sons of Israel, listen to this, everybody. See, the Lord has called by name, Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the spirit of God. We're filled with the spirit of God. He has filled him with wisdom. We have all wisdom and righteousness in Christ. And understanding and in the knowledge of all craftsmanship. To do what? To make designs for working in gold and in silver and in bronze and in cutting for stones for the settings and in the carving of the wood, so as to perform in every inventive work. He has also put in his heart to teach others how to do this. Does this sound familiar? This is a picture of God coming on to somebody, giving them skills, giving them uniqueness, filling them with his spirit to go out and do the artistic work of building the temple, which which again is a microcosm of the world, building the temple and to teach others. He filled, he filled not just him, but Aholiab as well, the son of Ahishamach, the tribe of Dan. He filled them with skill to perform every work of an engraver and of a designer and of an embroiderer in blue and in purple and scarlet and fine linen and as a weaver, as performers of every work and all makers of designs. Our God is a creative God and he's given us that creativity to go out and build for his temple and his kingdom. He called him to do this. This is what you and I are in God's hands. We're a Bezalel. We've been filled with the spirit, but we've been uniquely given skills that nobody else has. Now, this doesn't just mean tradesman skills. This means, you're, this means you. You are God's instrument, your uniqueness. Now go out and build. Ask the Lord, what do you have for me to do same with noah we see this picture throughout scripture god using men to build for his kingdom now again he says arise and build arise and build he says let us arise and build and they put their hands to the good work now nehemiah i believe chose these words very carefully because in first chronicles 22 16 it says, of the gold, the silver, and the bronze, and the iron, there is no limit. Arise and work, and may the Lord be with you. This is when they were building Solomon's temple. And so he is using that same, he's connecting it back to David. He's connecting it back to Solomon, who ultimately who built the temple that David desired to, excuse me. And he is valuing this, he's connecting the work back to that. So Nehemiah, summary conclusion, he moved from burden to action with the right motive. He understood the end goal of what God was doing, and that was to build his kingdom, to build forth his kingdom. Again, this is way back, 445 B.C., but it's part of that line of redemption. And Nehemiah stepped out and arose to build the walls. Now, this is what we must do. We must move. If you do have a burden, if you don't have a burden, then you need to pray for a burden for the Lord to be used. All of us here, are pretty young, all of us here. and, and, And it's, you know what? Even if you're not, even if you're late, look at Moses was used in his 80s. You can be used by God in a powerful way, but you must move from burden to action with the right motive, Christ and his kingdom. Understanding the end goal, which is new creation. You are part of that. You are putting the bricks in that. You're not going to have your name on it like they would if you donated money to the new building. But God is going to give you a new name and he's going to write it on your forehead. Now step out. What we have to do is step out in faith. How do we do that? We go. We inspect the damage. We look at what we're dealing with. We make the plan. And then we say, let's arise and let's build. Let's pray. Father, I, th- I thank you, Father, for using us to build your kingdom, God. I pray, Lord, that you would inspire us, give us the burden for your world, Lord, that you are rebuilding. Let us stand against evil in love. Let us proclaim your gospel, Lord. Let's announce it to every creature. Lord, let us not take this. Uh, this is not our work, Lord. This is your work. So, Lord, fill us with the Holy Spirit and have your way. And, Lord, we pray, for your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together and let's have this last worship song and we'll close.